0: Welcome to Drucker on the Dial, a show on leadership and management where timely issues meet timeless principles. Produced by the Drucker Institute at Claremont Graduate University. I'm your host, Palana Tiller. Today on Drucker on the Dial, we're going to talk with two very special guests who knew Peter Drucker better than almost anyone else, save for his family. First, we'll chat with Bob Buford, a cable television pioneer turned social entrepreneur who, as he put it, conspired with Peter Drucker to save the world. Our second guest today will be management professor Joe Masciarello, a colleague of Drucker's at Claremont Graduate University and the only person to ever co-author a book with him. In addition, we'll also hear some of Drucker's own words in letters that he wrote to others who, like Buford and Masciarello, considered Drucker not just a friend or a consultant, but really an irreplaceable mentor. As always, my guest's insights will be illuminated by Drucker's own teachings. The late Peter Drucker author of 39 books, and advisor to countless corporations, nonprofit groups, and government agencies. Peter Drucker, the man business weeks that invented management. Our first guest today is Chairman Emeritus of the Drucker Institute's Board of Advisors, Bob Buford. Buford recently published his latest book, Drucker and Me, What a Texas Entrepreneur Learned from the Father of Modern Management. The narrative traces Buford's journey from running a media company to becoming a committed venture philanthropist with a strong focus on the Christian church, a journey that Peter Drucker guided over 23 years. In terms of friendship, we were an unlikely pairing, Buford writes in Drucker and Me, a generation apart in age. One of us spoke English with a heavy Austrian accent, the other spoke Texan. I owned a cable television company. Peter didn't even own a television. I followed the Dallas Cowboys. He followed Japanese art. Yet for all these differences, the two clicked. Their sensibilities and worldview were totally in sync. In Peter, Buford explains, I found a soulmate. Bob Buford, welcome to Drucker on the Dial.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Bob, there are so many Peter Drucker books in the world. There's the 39 that he wrote, the numerous biographies, and other books that expand on his ideas. And given all that's available by or about Drucker, why were you compelled to write this book
1: i felt that it would be selfish not to write the book mm-hmm. because i gathered all this material one-on-one with peter and it's just marvelous It was a hard book to write or at least to figure out how to go about it and i came up with just do it as a relationship between a world famous figure and a client 30 years younger
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and it's more about peter the man than it is about peter the ideas which is what most of the books seem to be
0: yeah would you tell us how you first met peter drucker what initially brought the two of you together well, I was
1: 42 years old and the CEO of a broadcast television company that was moving along at about 25% gain a year. Wow. And also uh, an acquisition a year. And I read all the management books. I could get my hands on, and finally discovered that all I needed was Peter. Hmm. So I threw all the other management books away, (laughs) and I said, this is is how I'm going to play this game, Mm -hmm. and it never disappointed me, ever. The difference in Peter... Is that he was concerned, and almost exclusively concerned with the human side of management.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When he was uh, 90 years old, I had a poster commissioned that you probably see every day. With it has a field of hands in the middle and. Peter's three questions, what is our business, who's the customer, and what does the customer consider value? And he was basically about the interaction of people uh, to create a customer. Mm -hmm. It's hard for us to remember. There was a time when people just went and did a job and uh, tried to make a lot of money. And I think Peter's central innovation is to center the business on Mm-hmm. on customer. Uh, he told me about a um, a change in his life that came as a result of moving to Britain to get away from Hitler, who had burned his first two books. Mm-hmm. So that was not a very comfortable place to be. Sure. He, he went to a lecture by John Maynard Keynes, the economist, mm-hmm. and it changed his life. He said, when he left that and was thinking about it, he said, Keynes is altogether about commodities, mainly money, and I'm all altogether about people.
0: Hmm. How then did you reach out to him, or how did you first meet him? What happened that brought you together with the writer of those books?
1: Well, it's kind of like uh, walking up to Mount Rushmore and having <laughs> it come alive. I wrote a letter and asked to come see him, and it was about an eight-draft letter. Uh, and lo and behold, he let me in, and I had my best suit and tie on, and uh, that that's how it started. Huh. In Jim Collins' book, he describes uh, a red mailbox outside the front door mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a very noisy uh, bell, and it was just the same. He, he turned out to be an incredibly... Uh, He was a combination of about as results-oriented as you could get Mm -hmm. and about as gracious as you can get and a person of just exactly the the values that I had Mm -hmm. underlying all of that. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was the big thing, but we uh, talked... For the first couple of years about business,
2: mm-hmm. because I,
1: I was uh, frightened that that's all, all he wanted to talk about. <laughs> and Well, I mean, he's the father of modern management. Sure. And management to most people sounds like business.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: But uh, I found that by the time I knew him, he was kind of wrapping up his big business books. And that is when he discovered or or said that the social sector needed management as well as the commercial sector. Mm -hmm. Peter Peter said that that the nonprofit world was going to be America's greatest export to the rest of the world.
0: Mm. Let's let's turn a little bit to you and, and your life. You shared in the book about the very difficult experience of the death of your son, Ross, and the turning point that came of that. Would you tell us a little bit about your subsequent conversations with Peter about that time and how that experience impacted your life's work and your relationship with Peter? Well,
1: it's a story of um, a person whose father died, when he was uh, in the fifth grade, that's me, mm-hmm. and who had uh, one son who was just kind of a, a golden boy. Mm. And uh, he, he went to Texas Christian University, mm-hmm. and, and he went into the brokerage business for uh, mm-hmm. cable TV. Mm-hmm. And he and two other boys had, um, just a, on a lark, uh, they were going to cross the Rio Grande River And re-entered the United States as aliens might. Uh, And some um, very cold water Mm -hmm. had been let out upstream in Colorado. And two of the few, including Ross, got hypothermic and swept away. And when Peter heard about it, uh, he called and was it was just pastoral, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Uh, very personal, pastoral, al- almost as though he was uh, Ross's grandfather or something wow. like that. Yeah. Linda and I had had a conversation one, one time that I'll might never forget with Peter where I was telling him what my six goals were for life. Mm-hmm. This was right at the start. And I had a goal for Ross. And I remember he told me that... that I couldn't make goals for other people. And he said, you can make goals about what your behavior is toward Ross, but he he has to make up his own life. As it related to Peter, it was just a deep personal relationship. He, He was the person that I most admired in the world. Yeah, you know, uh, Jim Collins and I came to an agreement at uh, on stage at, at Claremont Graduate University that perhaps the the two great figures in the 20th century were Peter Drucker
0: and Winston Churchill. Wow. wow. <laughs> you do a really excellent job, Bob, of bringing readers in close. I felt like I was inside of a very personal experience in terms of the relationship and the friendship that you convey with Peter, and especially your gratitude to him as a mentor. Would you tell us a little bit about what it was in his style of mentoring that made Peter so unique and ultimately so helpful to you? Uh,
1: I'll give you four words that characterize Peter's way of mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, were permission, encouragement, acknowledgement, and accountability. Those four things. And and frankly, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life because I, I knew how he did it. And uh, he always started with questions. Mm-hmm. He started yeah. with, the, what do you want to get accomplished? Mm-hmm. And I... Would say that that uh, in terms of permission, I don't think he changed. He even endeavored to change people. Mm-hmm. He, he intended to to build on the islands of health and strength, and to give them permission. And in my case, just pure confidence to do something big. The encouragement part was just obvious. That so, it's something you need as you're going along. He was always graceful in his correction, mm-hmm. but pretty firm, <laughs> as you know. Uh, Acknowledgment uh, was all of us need some kind of applause, and I had lost lost a father, and by then a mother as well. Mm-hmm. And so the acknowledgement part was re- was really uh, deeply. Built on my admiration and respect for Peter Drucker, mm-hmm. uh, he had an, an unusual way to uh, do accountability. He told me the first time we met, and and we were going to meet another time. Mm-hmm. He said, "I want you to write a long rambling letter about what you want to talk about," huh. which means he kind of put the ball in my court. Right, and I think he did th- that with everybody, mm-hmm. and, and and it was unique. You're not going someplace to get instruction. You're Going it more to get wisdom about the things that are uh, important to you. Mm-hmm. And I was always struck with the fact that if, if the Chancellor of Japan called me while we were there, he let it go to voicemail. Wow. <laughs> I mean, was, and I think he did that with most everybody. That that he when he was on your case, uh-huh. he was all the way there, and he had an incredible memory. I mean, here, here's a person that got to be in his 90s and still could remember three sessions back. He, wow. he gave me permission to tape everything. So I had a little Sony cassette mm-hmm. paper and it turned out to be a uh, thousand pages wow. of transcripts.
0: When you first met him and you first engaged him for guidance, did you imagine that you would have such a long relationship with him and You know, a lot of people engage with mentors around a period or a particular project or a role that they have. But I don't imagine that they think of a multi-decade relationship with their mentor necessarily. So did you ever picture that? And then were there moments along the way where you sort of had to consciously decide, yes, I will plan to see him next year? Or did you have a much more organic evolution to your relationship?
1: Uh, It was was organic at first because I was, I guess, intimidated would be a word, (laughs) of having this privilege. To speak to the to the person I thought was the wisest person alive, in terms of his specialty, which which was to uh, get people working together to to accomplish something. Mm-hmm. And as time went on, and we began to get into what I wanted to talk about, which was what to do with the rest of my life. I'd been in business for twenty years. I'd made lots of money and could have, uh, at age 40 or so, retired, mm-hmm. which I'm never going to do, really. <laughs> and I discovered that Peter had pretty much played the role in uh, with books like The Effective Executive and uh, Practice of Management that he turned in the last half of his life toward the social sector. Mm-hmm. He didn't leave business but he he just reproportioned himself as did I. Mm We we were fascinated with the idea of the social sector being as important and perhaps more so in Peter's big dream, which was to produce a functioning society. Mm
0: -hmm. I think a lot of our efforts here as we try to understand Peter Drucker's ideas and then eventually try to understand the man more, we get a lot out of talking to people like you who knew him and who worked with him in person. And his widow, Doris, has said that you were most likely his best friend. What do you think you gave to Peter that helped the two of you connect so well? What was your valuable contribution to his life?
1: Well, I think this would apply generically to almost any mentor's relationship it's very important that the mentor himself or herself gets as much out of the experience as the as the person on the receiving end Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, joe masciarello his closest associate said that i was peter's best student the well one way of looking at it is this that that the key to peter is the um uh, is the forward to what I call his big red book the title of the um the forward mm-hmm. was alternative to tyranny
2: mm-hmm.
1: in other mm-hmm. words alternative to one man rule yeah. like we're seeing perhaps in Russia right now-
2: mm-hmm.
1: What he said is the the purpose of government was to tax and redistribute money for the public good. The purpose of business was to create customers for goods and services. Mm -hmm. Notice there isn't isn't anything about money. Money to Peter was something you had to have to, uh, to raise capital and to sustain a business or a nonprofit. He always said that the role of the social sector uh, is not to make a lot of money, it's to change a lot of lives. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody else
0: was thinking that. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to someone today who might be looking for a mentor? What makes a good fit?
1: The first thing and the most important thing, I think, is to have common goals and the same values and an agreement on what results are. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have a little bronze plaque on my desk that has a Drucker quote that says, the joy is in the results. And I think it's the mentor and the person on the receiving end Both need to be uh, up to the same results. And they're usually um, 20 or 30 years distance in age Mm -hmm. apart. Though that's not necessary, I don't believe. I, I think increasingly the the younger party could uh, act as mentor in, in technology. Sure. As you know, Peter didn't have a computer, and he uh, did he didn't have a television set. I don't think.
0: I think I've heard the story that he would rent one during the World Series. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well. For someone in the television business, (laughs) I mean, there there were all these discontinuities here. I was in the television business, and he didn't own a television. He had a Viennese original language, Mm -hmm. and I had Texas for an original language. It's, It's some kind of miracle that it worked out the way it did.
0: Do you have any um, memory of one or two very specific pieces of advice that you got from Peter that changed the way you saw the world or conducted your business?
1: Um, I have in print 10 of the most uh, important values that came from Peter, Mm -hmm. and I'll tell you, uh, I'll give you three. Okay. The first would be to build on the islands of health and strength. Secondly, Peter said, you can spend the rest of your life working with people who are receptive to what you want to accomplish and to work on what's trying to happen. And that was just stunning to me. It gave me permission to work with people who want to get things done and in another way to not be against anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: in the way that politics seems to drive sure. people. I don't think we any of these organizations that I've, I I've founded are against much of anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It gets you in so much trouble <laughs> and it gets you in no forward movement mm-hmm. because you're probably not going to change whoever it is on the other side of an argument right. anyway. So we're We're all the time scouting for the the people who want to uh, grow and serve and uh, whose results are changed lives. Mm -hmm. And if other people are doing other things, uh, Godspeed to them. And the third thing I learned uh, is, now I changed Peter's language on this, Mm -hmm. uh, is go big or go home. (laughs) The, The way Peter counseled me, is that sounds more like Peter is not to fritter away my uh, time on matters that would not make a big difference in performance.
0: You translated that from from Viennese to Texan. Hence, go big or go home. Exactly. <laughs> As you know, Bob, I always end Drucker on the Dial with the question that Peter's teacher had asked him as a young boy, and that he's said to have asked his own students and clients about their legacy. What do you want to be remembered for? But before I ask you that question, would you tell me whether Peter ever actually asked you that question firsthand? And if so, how did that question strike you on the first occasion?
1: Yes, he did. And what he did, I can tell you the exact time and place that it happened. Mm-hmm. After being with Peter for for eight years, uh, he was about to talk to an audience that I put together at the Biltmore Hotel in uh, Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And we were talking and he said this sentence, he said, it's your job to transform the latent energy in American Christianity into active energy uh, in the service of his dream of a functioning society. He did change the world. The, the Wall Street Journal once had a, an op-ed piece that was called Changing Society, mm-hmm. and management certainly did that.
0: Yeah. Our next guest is Joe Masarello a professor emeritus at the Peter F. Drucker and Masatoshi Ito Graduate School of Management at Claremont Graduate University. Masciarello holds the Marie Rankin-Clark Professor of Social Science and Management, the same chair that Peter Drucker himself once held. Joe's most recent book, with Karen Linkletter, is Drucker's Lost Art of Management. In addition, he co-authored two books with Peter Drucker, The Daily Drucker and The Effective Executive in Action. Joe Masciarello, welcome to Drucker on the Dial.
3: Thank you, uh, Palana, for having me.
0: Uh, recently, Joe, we spoke with Bob Buford uh, about his book Drucker and Me, and about the great relationship that he shared with Peter Drucker, both as as mentor and as friend. Could you give us some of your insights into Drucker's style and success as a mentor? What what made him so helpful to Bob Buford, and and what made him so unique as a mentor?
3: Well, he was uh, a man of enormous stature. Uh, who took on relatively few clients and, in Bob's case, friends. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, and those that he took on near the end of his life, at least in the last couple of decades, seem to be few and deep. And um, Bob uh, was one of them. And the thing that uh, is so startling, if you really study the details, is um, how, as Bob talks about in a book, he took him from an executive running his own firm and helped him in managing his firm and in growing his firm, growing his firm very rapidly. Mm-hmm. to what uh, Peter and Bob would call a um, parallel career where where Bob began to get more and more involved in social entrepreneurship, which was a early call on his life that materialized a long mm-hmm. time later.
0: Can you tell us a little bit, maybe offer some specific examples of the types of things that he did with you or with other uh, leaders? I know he worked with some very prominent corporate and nonprofit leaders of the time. Yes, he um, did. And who else, so who else might, have been a recipient of his mentorship and what are the kinds of ways that he
3: well there there are a number of people that were recipients of his mentorship Mm -hmm. uh bob and bill pollard and and john bachman and jack welch uh, jim collins and um um, france and uh uh, the the uh, generals of the uh, salvation army and those are people I know of mm-hmm. and the people at Willow Creek, uh, the head of the Willow Creek Association. And uh, the power of management, in, especially in the social sector, mm-hmm. was, uh, was the topic he was most concerned with because he was concerned with society and the shape society was in and, it's, and the role the social sector could play in strengthening society.
0: Mm-hmm. I then asked Joe, what made Peter Drucker so effective as a mentor?
3: Part of the mentoring process is leading a person to become what that person is meant to be and then encouraging the person along the way. Mm -hmm. Surely, if you will, asking the right questions, holding him accountable, also um, giving his advice on midterm corrections, what's important, what's not important.
0: I knew that Peter Drucker was more than just a colleague of Joe Masciarello. I knew that Joe must have learned a tremendous amount from him, and so I asked him to share with us some of the most valuable lessons.
3: I learned integrity,
0: Mm
3: -hmm. to to be faithful Mm -hmm. to the uh, people you work with. I learned that from him and uh, the importance of it. I mean, it's obviously something very basic, but I learned the importance of it from him.
2: Sure.
0: I still wanted to know if there were any other big lessons that Joe took from Peter Drucker.
3: I learned something, and that is that if you're working at the core of what you really love, the enthusiasm and the energy to do it is there.
2: Right.
3: That tells me what to work on and what not to work on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's the litmus. That's you, you great. understand? Yes, absolutely. If,
3: it, if it's at your core, you're going to have a lot of energy for it. Mm-hmm. And it, it takes that. Mm-hmm. If you look at what Bob accomplished, it took an enormous amount yes. of energy over a long period of time, 20-some odd years, and it's still going on.
0: That's so. terrific. That's really yeah, that's great. It. Thank you so much for, for making the time to talk with me, Joe, and for joining us here on Drucker on the Dial. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you, Bon. Although Bob Buford and Joe Masciarello had particularly deep relationships with Peter Drucker, many, many people benefited from his close counsel over the years. In fact, Inc. Magazine went so far as to call Drucker the North Star of Mentors. With that in mind, here are excerpts from a few letters that Drucker sent to his own mentees. In them, you'll hear that magical blend of cheerleading and challenging that Buford and Masciarello speak of. Gentlemen, one cannot manage a large and diversified business without some very real and major changes in the way top management behaves. For since top management no longer can really do everything, it either encourages people to do things their own way and focuses on results and standards only, or it's forced to turn over more and more of the work to carbon copies, that is, people who imitate. And carbon copies are weak and get increasingly weaker. If this implies that I strongly believe that you will have to accept the fact that you will have to change your style if you want to grow, yes, indeed, this is what I'm trying to tell you. The one thing I would say as an old friend is that you are too tired now to make a decision. Dan, believe me, the smart thing for you to do just now is to take six weeks out as soon as you can. Take a long vacation with your family without committing yourself one way or another, and then maybe you will decide— Again, my thanks for the day, and I hope you do not resent my speaking very frankly. I was a little upset by the way I found you. You have no business being so tired at your age, or at any age. Get some real rest, and postpone, if you possibly can, all decisions until you have bounced back and have regained your enthusiasm, your gaiety, and your capacity to enjoy life and work. I have only one negative comment, but a pretty important one. Stop talking about druckerizing your organization. The job ahead of you is to jonesize your organization. And only if you accept this would I be of any help to you. Otherwise, I would rapidly become a menace, which I refuse to be. I was very much impressed with the statements from your associates, and I was very much impressed also by the day we had together. It was almost too much. My head was swimming when I left, and it took me several days to digest all I had heard. It was a very productive day for me. And I hope it was a very productive day for you, too. I'm both tremendously impressed and a little worried about your plans for yourself. Aren't you doing too much? Especially as you still have a year and a half as CEO. What are your priorities? Please, keep me informed. All my love to you, to Jorge, and to the children. Those passages were taken from letters Drucker sent to Mort Mandel, the CEO of auto parts supplier Premier Industrial Corporation and his senior team, in 1970, to Dan Lufkin of the investment bank Donaldson, Lufkin & Genrent, in 1975, to John Bachman and the managing partners of financial services provider Edward Jones, in 1982, and to Carolina Bacard, an Argentinian social entrepreneur, in 2003. As always... I had ended the conversations with Bob Buford and Joe Massarello by asking my favorite question, the one I'll never grow tired of, the one that Peter Drucker's teacher asked him when he was a schoolboy, and that he went on to ask his own students, clients, and friends, what do you want to be remembered for? Here's what they had to say.
1: In terms of personal responsibilities, um, the first is I want to make one woman happy. Hmm. And I work on that every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second is to be fruitful in honoring my commitment and calling to serve God by serving others. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which most of the time isn't trying to talk them into something. It's uh, to help them uh, realize... um, what what they wanted to do in the first place, yeah um, I've been founding chairman of four organizations that that started from scratch. Mm-hmm. one is leadership network, whose customer is the large and growing mega churches in the u s.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which have increased by tenfold in the 20 years I've been working on them. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Those are incredible results. (laughs) uh, So that's one. Uh, Second is Halftime, the organization that is really a a byproduct of my first book, whose mission is to foster and move people moving from success to significance in the second half of their life, which is what Peter did and what I'm doing. The third one was to uh, extend Peter's work through the Drucker Institute and in a lesser way, Chair Frances Hesselbein on in her work, which mm-hmm. always mentions Peter. And my my hope that the three of these initiatives become movements on their own, and with the organizations that I founded would have strong leadership and would realize Peter's dream of a functioning society mm-hmm. long beyond my lifetime and his.
3: My love for this country is very deep, and it's all bound up in the kind of leadership we've been blessed with in the past uh, that have created this a wonderful place. And um, I really wanted to help uh, at all levels. And I think um, I think Drucker's got the he, he has that heart mm-hmm. to help the institutions of society mm-hmm. by helping others, and ultimately it does get down to people. Yeah. You know, you're transforming the lives of people. And you you deal with your own mortality. You realize that life is passing away. I'm unlikely to live 95 years. I mean, I hope I do. And so I I have to get it done fast, at least in the next 10 years, if I have that long. So uh, I'm actively employed in trying to put the nuts and bolts to Drucker's work, operating at a how-to level. I knew Peter as a colleague, and then I knew him. Working with him. So I didn't know him as a friend, the way Bob did. Sure. Uh, I knew him as a friendly colleague, and uh, he was really a good man. And uh, so I'm proud. To the extent I am associated with him and his work, I'm proud of it. Not only am I proud of the work, I'm proud
2: of him.
0: And now let's hear from Rick Wartzman, the Drucker Institute's executive director, with his biweekly column, The Drucker Difference, now appearing on time.com.
4: An open letter to my daughter. Dear Emma, next week you will graduate from college, a milestone that calls for a little fatherly advice, advice to be precise, from the father of modern management. So here, with an assist from your own dad, are half a dozen insights courtesy of Peter Drucker, a man who earned his degree more than 80 years ago, and then spent the next six decades mulling what it takes to be successful. I must warn you that Drucker believed education should confer duties rather than privileges, In other words, none of what I'm about to tell you is going to be easy. For starters, have the courage to quit your first job. I know, I know, you aren't even gainfully employed yet, and the labor market is brutal, especially for recent grads, and I'm suggesting that you already be prepared to give notice. But on the whole, Drucker wrote, young people have a tendency to hang on to the first job beyond the time when they should have quit for their own good. So as crazy as it might sound, be ready to bolt if you aren't learning enough, or if you don't work for an employer that, as Drucker put it, is willing to heap responsibility on people in junior positions. Your first job may turn out to be right for you, but this is pure accident, Drucker noted. Certainly, you should not change jobs constantly or people will become suspicious rightly of your ability to hold any job. At the same time, you must not look upon the first job as the final job. It is primarily a training job, an opportunity to analyze yourself. Second, Drucker isn't kidding about analyzing yourself, or managing oneself, as he termed it in a famous essay that you and all of your classmates would be smart to read. As you step off campus, now is the time to begin to understand. What are your strengths? How do you perform at your peak? What are the core values that you would never compromise? What kind of work environment would provide the best fit? And then there is the most important question of all. Where can you make the most meaningful contribution? Odd as it seems, Drucker remarked, you will achieve the greatest results in business and career if you drop the word achievement from your vocabulary. Replace it with contribution. Third, as you contemplate contributing, be bold. Stretch yourself, yet don't overreach either. To aim at results that cannot be achieved, or that can be, under only the most unlikely circumstances, is not being ambitious, it is being foolish, Drucker wrote. Fourth, steel yourself for plenty of ups and downs as you make your way. In fact, one of the worst things that can happen to a person, Drucker asserted, is too much success too soon. One of the best things, meanwhile, is to get knocked around at an early age. It teaches you how to cope. Anyone who has been through earlier setbacks has learned that the world has not come to an end, Rucker wrote, but the person who comes up against it for the first time at the age of 45 is likely to collapse for good. For the things that people are apt to do when they receive the first nasty blow may destroy a mature person, especially someone with a family, whereas a youth of 25 bounces right back. Fifth, take stock regularly and honestly assess how it's going. Drucker did this every summer, judging his work from the preceding year, beginning with the things I did well, but could or should have done better, down to the things I did poorly and the things I should have done, but did not do. With this unvarnished view, you'll be well positioned to reset your priorities going forward. Finally, keep in mind that while you're about to receive your diploma, it's up to you to continue learning. There's simply no choice in an era where knowledge quickly becomes obsolete. Drucker liked to tell the story of the man who attends his 40-year college reunion and sees his former professor just as he is about to administer a final exam. The old grad looks at the test and says, ''Professor Smithers, these are the same questions you asked us 40 years ago.'' Smithers nods and says, ''Yes, but the answers are different.'' ''We always thought it was a joke.'' ''No, this is wisdom,'' Drucker explained. ''The answers to questions do not remain the same. You learn to do a little better.'' to push back that infinite boundary of ignorance just a bit. Of course, you must never stop learning for another reason, too. It's the one thing that keeps life interesting. And boredom, as Drucker cautioned, is a deadly disease. By offering these guideposts, Drucker's ultimate intention was clear. For everyone to find personal satisfaction and to feel that she contributes, performs, serves her values, and fulfills herself. Mom and I couldn't wish for you any more than that.
0: A version of that essay first appeared in The Drucker Difference, a biweekly column for Time.com. Thank you for listening to Drucker on the Dial. And don't forget, follow us on Twitter at DruckerInst, D-R-U-C-K-E-R-I-N-S-T, for all the very latest here at the Institute. As always, you can follow our ongoing conversation about leadership and management at our daily blog, The Drucker Exchange, at T H E D X. TheDX.org. o r g the dx.org.